Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You have those notes that are in your Wicca Bulletin. I encourage you to take those out and join me in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. It's been some time since we were navigating uh, through Second Peter. I was went back and looked to see when was the last time we were in Second Peter, and it was November the sixth of last year. So our study, our prayer study that we just ended last week, and ended officially in our small groups in our small group study of it uh, uh, earlier this morning, uh, has removed us for several weeks from our study of Second Peter. But excited to be back in this epistle of of Peter. Uh, now let's just just give a little bit of backdrop a little bit of history uh just to kind of bring some recall to your mind since it has been a moment since we were in second peter i don't expect you to have fully memorized the the book necessarily but i want to familiarize yourself with it second peter uh is the second letter that paul or that peter is writing of course uh following up his first letter that he had written uh first and and first peter of course and that one it was an encouragement to the church in line of suffering in light of suffering, how should the body respond? And and, uh, uh, and thinking through that carefully and ministering to the body of Christ at that particular day and to the body of Christ and our modern day through uh, the words that the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen. But now the second letter has been written to the church to prepare them for false teaching and false teachers. And so ultimately he begins his letter encouraging them to understand their salvation and the election and calling to which they uh, were called to the Lord and that ultimately to see that if you are in Christ you should be growing uh, in your faith and have an understanding of his word as a result that we don't want to be looking to our own experiences above scripture but ultimately should be looking to God's word and this is important because that's exactly then how the, the false teachers will be tested it's testing them to, in light of God's word and so then he begins to communicate to them the word and the prophecy that had been given even prior to uh, Christ coming on the scene, but then clearly um, uh, affirming Christ's words and the teaching and that Christ's teachings were a fulfillment of those uh, previous scriptures that were granted. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he began to talk about that in times past, there was a uh, false prophets were risen amongst the people uh, with an attempt to deceive. And now as there was false prophets arose among the people before, uh, there will be false teachers among us and among you, he says in Second Peter chapter two, verse one. And what were they? What were they be doing? They will be secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And the last words that we studied together back in November, was their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And so we, uh, our last sermon out of Second Peter was warning us to beware of false prophets, to beware of false teachers. Just as there was false teachers in the Old Testament or false prophets in the Old Testament, there'll be false teachers 
in the context of the new covenant as well. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 4 and read through verse 10. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 10. The Bible says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, tor- he was tormenting um, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to understand your word. Father, you'd give us clarity. And that, Lord, from this, it might be a word of warning, a word of admonition, of caution. But I pray it would also be a word of encouragement and of exhortation, of building up. That, Lord, your judgment is right and it is good and it is just. And that, Lord, those who lie and those who pervert your truth will be judged. They will not uh, escape from judgment, as even though in this world it appears that they flourish and they thrive. They're succeeding. But Lord, you have a purpose even in that. Lord, you know how to, as your word has told us, to keep them under punishment until the day of judgment. And so, Lord, we know that they are building up, they're accruing for themselves greater condemnation. But, Lord, you would want us not to be uninformed. You would want us to be prepared to know how to interact with the false teachers and false teaching of our day as you would through your Apostle Peter to prepare those in the first century. And so, Lord, help us to be mindful. As we've even studied in recent days, praying for your holy justice to be manifested. And Lord, may it be mingled with bitterness, compassion, and mindfulness of our own sin. And so, Lord, lead us as we study. May it guide us. May it warn us. May it encourage us not to play with sin or not to entertain it on any level. And may it help us to be faithful to your word in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation as has been listed numerous times even in the text that we will study this morning. Lead us to understand. Guide us. May your spirit grant us proper interpretation of this passage. And Lord, would you help me to make sense of it that we could apply this to our lives this day. Honor you and glorify you and love you all the more and long for your return all the more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter here, as our theme is going to be future judgment of false teachers, wants us to understand as he wanted the the audience of the first century to understand exactly what is going to transpire. Many times these false teachers 
who are thriving off the people that in their um, uh, greed will exploit with false words the very people they say they're, they're here to shepherd, uh, that ultimately in that you begin to think, well, man, it seems like their systems are growing and thriving. You begin to look at many and much of the televangelists that are on TV and, and a variety of those who, who are uh, preaching an, a cheap gospel uh, or no gospel whatsoever. Ultimately, their desire is to build kingdoms for themselves, to raise money for themselves. No promise a variety of, of benefits to the hearer if they will only do the things that they're requiring of them, if they will only send a seed gift, a love offering, if they'll only um, sell property and esteem them and love on them and help them raise money for their corporate uh, jets or for their private jets or for a variety of things that's in their lives that will benefit benefit them and actually to the exploitation of those that they say they're out to help. And you can look around and begin to look at the righteous and you begin to see the righteous and how the righteous will live. And you, sometimes you can begin to wonder, man, is, God, are you, are you aware of what's taking pay, place? Are you, do you understand what's happening here? Even David in the Psalms would begin to, to uh, uh, communicate with God uh, about how it seems that the wicked would prosper and that the unrighteous would succeed. And it didn't take him very long until he began to then see the folly and, the, and that type of thinking, and ultimately to see that, that we're not created for this world, but for the next, and that God is sovereign over his throne. But if you begin to look at, uh, look at others, you can begin to see churches that are watering down the gospel, churches that are, but at the same time, it seems that they're attracting more and more people, larger and larger crowds. They're esteeming more of a name for themselves. They now have the resources to continue to um, uh, propagate that message to the masses because now they have the ability to be on radio and they have the ability to be on television. They have the ability to be able to reach more and more people. And it seems like, and it can appear that you begin to wonder, God, what are you doing? Why does it seem that even those who, those who desire to live godly are the ones who are having the most difficulty and those who are not living godly seems to be prospering in this world? And it's in this exactly why Peter is writing and why he's encouraging the church here in the New Testament. He's communicating them that these false prophets will exploit others and they're going to, uh, 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 by their greed, they're going to begin to try to take advantage of others. And he's going to then to begin to bring a caution to the body of Christ to be able to say, but their end, even though it seems right to them, there's a way that seems right to man, but his end leads to death. It leads to judgment. And for the men and women as it was uh, of the New Testament, as it does, as it's leading us to understand in the context of this passage, was to be able to say, understand your salvation. Understand the word. Understand what the Bible actually says and what the Bible actually communicates about your relationship with Christ and about uh, the world that we live in so that you will not be taken by surprise. And even though it seems like there is a host of ungodliness all around you to where you think, man, the, the church cannot possibly withstand the onslaught of sinfulness that ultimately God will spare the righteous and God will judge those who, will, who will participate in ungodliness. And so it's yet a warning and an encouragement to the body of Christ. A warning to, for those who are clearly are outside the body of Christ, but then a warning to the body of Christ to remain faithful. And that's what we want to be able to dive into and study this morning. So three major points I want us to see in our notes. And hopefully, the, as Peter has done and the, the Spirit has inspired him, the very end will bring a word of encouragement. It's going to be a lot of judgment, but hopefully be a word of encouragement there toward the end. 
as Peter's pastoral heart came through uh, as he was um, very passionately condemning, and he will next week. Uh, you, you think many times that Pastor Tim and I may not be the most politically correct, uh, that we're pretty direct and we don't just fall in line with what we think the pundits would want us to say or what others in our, our public world would want us to be able to communicate. Well, you begin to hear how Peter, in the next, next week when I stand to preach and talk about characteristics of false teachers, uh, he does not mince words, and he is angry uh, with their character. And so we'll, we'll unpack that this week. But this week, we want to see the future judgment of false teachers. First, we want to see the future judgment of false teachers is explicit in the teaching of the Bible. The future judgment of false teachers is explicit in the teaching of the Bible. And I, it's not in our primary text here, but I wanted just to tie it to the previous section before we uh, just kind of bring some reminders here before we dive into our text, just to make sure we understand the context. In verse 3, it says, And in their greed, in the greed of these false teachers, they will exploit you with false words. And it says here, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so clearly by this, the Bible is explicit in its teaching. And we could go through a variety of Old Testament uh, renderings, even the woes of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 to the Pharisees and their teaching falsely about his kingdom. But ultimately here in, in verse 3, it begins to walk through an explicit teaching that ultimately the judgment of false teachers is one of condemnation and one of destruction. It says here in your notes, their, their condemnation has been expressed They've been condemned all the way. It harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That when the serpent brought false words into the Garden of Eden and deceived Eve and then the willful disobedience of Adam. Ultimately, there you see in the Garden of Eden, there was judgment brought. There was a curse brought upon sinfulness and of false teaching. And here you see that even from that moment forth, the Bible has condemned from long ago the condemnation of false teaching. And so it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And so for us to be able to see there any false teacher in our past and our present or the future, ultimately the Bible is very clear. It's explicit. There's no hiding what God's word says about false teaching, that there, there is condemnation, wholesale condemnation of any error of any false teaching that would go against God. And that condemnation from long ago is not idle. Now, when you think, well, man, that's pretty strong. What, what type of false? I mean, has there been times where you may have Mis, misapplied a, a scripture passage? Absolutely. And so we want to be careful there. Does that mean, so that mean that you're, you're condemned to hell? No. Ultimately here, go back to verse 1. It help us to be able to understand this. Chapter 2, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false pre- prophets also arose among the people, just as there was false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in, here it is, destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And so here it is. And when it begins to lead us to deny our salvation begins to lead us to teach other forms of salvation. That this type of false teaching is condemned, and, it, and that has been expressed throughout the Bible. So their condemnation condemnation has been expressed, and their destruction will be experienced. So their condemnation has been expressed. God has said already He's against false teachers and the falsehood that they would teach. But then ultimately, as a result of that, they will be destroyed. It says there. That their condemnation from long ago is not idle in verse 3, and their destruction is not asleep. It gives a, a it personifies their future judgment as if it was um, um, uh, executioner. 
And he was going to come to them and it was going to destroy them. And it says ultimately they continued to remain in their, their false teaching. Ultimately, they're, they're, they're building more and more condemnation to ultimately their destruction will happen. And so it's not, God is not idle in his con- condemning their speech and he is not asleep. He knows what is taking place and they are, they're uh, only intensifying the judgment that they will experience in, in the coming days. And so the Bible is very clear. Future judgment of false teachers is explicit in the teaching of the Bible. And then the means to expound upon that, the Bible is then going to again give us examples in the New Testament to help us to see that if God has done this in the past, he will then judge in the present. And so your second note there says the future judgment of false teachers is expected. It's not only is it explicit in the teaching of the Bible, but it is expected since God has recorded his righteous judgment against sin in various forms throughout the Bible. And so then in verses Four and following is going to begin to walk us through a variety of examples of God, how God has recorded his righteous judgment against sin in the context of the Bible to demonstrate this very point. That ultimately his condemnation hasn't been expressed and their destruction will be experienced. And so he's saying, pay attention to previous examples that have been recorded in the history of, of sinfulness and how God responded to sinfulness and then apply God's righteous wrath and anger in light of those sinful behaviors in light of how he's going to treat false teachers in our present world. And so you're going to see this in four ways. How did then this false teachers, how did God record this to bring a warning to false teachers and to bring an encouragement to believers in the midst of this? How did God, what are three things that he recorded? And you see them here in your notes. Number one, he recorded the fallen angels that were cast into hell. Fallen angels that were cast into hell. Here's what it says. Four, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. And so you're seeing now you're going to see an if-then scenario. You're going to see an if this happened, if God has recorded judgment against sin in the past, then you're going to see, as it then goes all the way then to verse 10, then he will be able to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's the context. And so he's going to walk through three examples. And the first of those is fallen angels cast into hell for if god did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment now who are these fallen angels who are these angels it doesn't say fallen angels in there so what's my notes communicate but these were the angels that were were formerly angels now they're demons and they were cast to the earth after the fall uh, that the Bible speaks of with Lucifer and then a third of the angels that had fallen. But they came to the earth and they sinned, it says here. They did not spare angels when they sinned. And so the question for us is then, well, how then did they sin? What was it that they have done? And so the Bible, we, we did walk through this. You may be familiar with this as I was preaching, preaching through First Peter chapter 3 and it began to talk about those spirits in prison that Jesus went to proclaim or to herald his victory over and it, I alluded to some of these things, but in the event that you weren't here or that you don't remember everything that is, is communicated from this pulpit, uh, we'll, we'll kind of do a brief recap on those. Jude helps us to see some understanding of what is taking place in this context. Jude and Second Peter are very uh, closely aligned as it's addressing false teachers. But listen to this. Jude's only one, uh, one chapter. So in verse 6 it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority... But left their proper dwelling, he has cast, he has kept in eternal chains 
under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as, so he's now going to parallel these, these angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the parallel here is beginning to give us some understanding of these fallen angels and what they have done, how they have sinned. It says that, number one, they did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And he says he's kept them there in these eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of great judgment. But then he then likens it just as, so in a similar way, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a a punishment of eternal fire. So the the similarities here is that when the angels left their proper authority and then leaving their proper authority, they left or their position of authority, left their proper dwelling, they've sinned in some form or fashion that's similar then to the way that the, the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah pursued sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, it's obvious to know from the context of reading the book of Genesis what that was in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was homosexuality. The men of that city were even pursuing the angels, and they wanted to have sexual relations with the angels in a manner uh, that was completely forbidden, correct? And so they wanted these angels. And even Lot, in a time that being just a horrible father, says, no, 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 I have two daughters. Take them and do with them as you will. And the people was of such lust and of such desire, they said, we don't want your daughters. We want these men that showed up that you're housing in your home. And so the unnatural... Uh, desire for men wanting and desiring men sexually, the Bible says that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. So it wasn't simply Sodom and Gomorrah, but a variety of other cities as well, that entire region. Now, if you think carefully about this, remember what was taking place. Abraham was praying for these cities, was he not? And remember how he began interceding on behalf of these people that if there would be 50 people, Maybe 50 people in this entire region. God, would you not destroy these people? And God agrees. If there was 50, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. And then you remember the, the context of what t- transpires there. And well, if, what if there was a little less and a little less and a little less? So ultimately, there's, God, if there were but 10, if you allow me to speak one last time, if there'd be only 10 remaining, would you not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the reality is, for us to understand in the context, there was not ten. There wasn't even four. Four made it out of the city initially, but then, as you know, Lot's wife turned around and looked back, and so then even then, there wasn't four, there was but three, Lot and his two daughters. And so the sin there is that this entire region of people were sinning against God, were dishonoring God with their lifestyles and were rebelling against God and His structure and His design for human, human beings and sexual relations within human beings. And so in that, the Bible is communicating that when they left their position of authority and their proper dwelling, these angels have sinned in some way that's similar to that. It's similar to the way that men leave their natural desire which should be normative desire for a man to desire a woman, and they begin to burn with lust and passion for man upon man. Male upon male. And it's unnatural. It's immoral. And so the Bible says, just as then, 
is, is these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and others, and the way that they've sinned, the way they indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desires, is a similar way that these angels sinned. Well, then if you go back and understand the context of the past, of what the Bible has said, then Genesis chapter 6 gives us some understanding of what was taking place there and it gives us some understanding of what has transpired in this situation. And this will help us to be able to see how is it that these angels have sinned that ultimately then God's judgment would fall upon them. Scripture says in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and this is speaking of angels here, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose, and then the Lord said, now this is at the point where then God says he's not going to continue to withstand this, right? Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim, these giants of the land, right? These Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men, of, uh, the mighty men who were of old, the men of Renown, And then shortly thereafter, it's in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his earth was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here you have two allusions, or uh, two uh, uh, portions where it alludes to the fact that these sons of God came and had sexual relations with the daughters of men. I think this is exactly what Jude chapter 6 is communicating. That these angels, these fallen angels, these demons left their proper position or left their position of authority, their, their proper place, their proper dwelling, and they came to earth, took on human flesh, and as a result of that had sexual relations with uh, the daughters of men. And as a result of that, they were uh, ultimately attempting to pervert God's will, pervert God's purposes, and even some communicate to a desire to create some kind of demon, a demonized super race uh, that would, the Nephilim would, would potentially be brought forth from, as a result of then creating a greater wickedness on the face of the planet, such of which that God says, I've got to hit the uh, recalibration button and the reset button and destroy everything except for righteous uh, uh, righteous Noah and his family and destroy everything else. And this is, I believe, what is exactly Peter is talking about here when he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that gloomy darkness, as it says, or chains, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. So here's what he's saying. If angels who were greater than man would sin, and God did not spare these greater beings, these greater angels, how much more so will he not judge false teachers, right? That's what he communicates, what he's alluding to here. And so if God's willing to judge fallen angels and cast them into hell to be into prison, then ultimately, he, why would he not do the same to false teachers? And it's important to see this. Now, is this, was this all of the angels, the fallen angels? Was this all of the demons? No, right? We ultimately know that they still exist on the planet, um, that ultimately when Jesus was there, the... Uh, the um, uh, the demon-possessed guy, Gennesaret, that they, they said, are you here to throw us into uh, or to put us into hellfire before it's time, right? 
they begin to, they, they know the, the story. They know the history of what's taking place. And so there are uh, demons that, are, that were not a part of this, that were not cast into this, this place of judgment until a future judgment. But ultimately, there, is, uh, there were those who, who had participated and were judged. And so uh, the warning to false teachers and the, and the encouragement to us as believers is that God, it's explicit in his teaching that he's going to judge, and it's expected since God's recorded righteous judgments against all kinds of a variety of sins, various forms of sin that were committed throughout the Bible. And so the first we saw was the, the issue of uh, greater to the lesser, right? So the fallen angels, which were greater than us, and yet God punished them. Will he not punish false teachers? Number two, you see the fallen angels cast in hell. Then you see the second example is the flooding of the entire world. The flooding of the entire world. And this was closely related to this fallen angels that were cast in hell, as we saw in Genesis chapter 6. And so he moves quickly into that teaching. And he says in verse 5, as he moves straight from the casting angels in hell, and says, if he did not spare the ancient world, the entire world. So this is now a picture, if you went from the greater to the lesser, you're seeing this again. If God will not spare the greater creator, creation, right, from the angels who were greater than us as man, but then imagine this, if God not would, uh, would, uh, went ahead and judged the entire world, which is greater than just an individual false teacher, if he's willing to judge the entire world, will he not judge an individual? He judged the entire ancient world, the flooding the entire world. If he not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if God's willing to judge the entire world, will he not then judge False teachers, when they proclaim falsehoods and they begin to lie about his salvation, begin to pervert his will and his ways based upon their ungodly speech, even to the point where they're exploiting those that they are called to serve. It says, if he's, if he's, if he's going to judge the whole world, do you not think that he's not going to judge the unrighteous, the unrighteous person who presents a false gospel? And then lastly, in verse, verses 6 through 8, you see a fiery extinction of ungodly cities. A fiery extinction of ungodly cities. First talked about the fallen angels, the flooding of the entire world, and now a fiery extinction of ungodly cities. In verse 6, And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so you're seeing here that now the same thing. We've, we've seen that both in this passage and even in Jude's passage, it's going to tie the sexual morality of these fallen angels, these demons, to the, to the, the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that surrounded it. But ultimately, because of their... Their immoral conduct, God's going to send a fiery, a fiery judgment upon them. He says, now listen, if God's not willing to destroy an entire region of people, will he not judge these false teachers by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes? He condemned them to extinction to the point where it's one of the, the only cities that potentially is left in the, in the Scripture where you find little to no... Um, uh, ability to find uh, um, any type of archaeological find to even substantiate where these cities were located. God absolutely obliterated them off the face of the planet. 
scholars and scientists, archaeologists struggle to find where, where, were these, where was this region at? Where, where does it exist? And there's a variety of different locations where they claim that this potentially place could be, but they can find little to no um, uh, artifacts from it because why? God absolutely extinguished them from the face of the planet by making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly because of their sexual conduct of the wicked over their lawless deeds that righteous Lot experienced while he was there. And so in each of these situations you're seeing, God says, I'm, listen, if I'm, I'm going to judge the fallen angels who are greater than you, if I'm going to judge the entire world and start over with just um, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three daughters. And then shortly thereafter, then their sin immediately begins to pick back up right where it left off, right? To the point where then Sodom and Gomorrah and his uh, judgment continues there. He says, and if I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring judgment in these three ways, how much more so would I not bring judgment to an individual person or to these false teachers who would pervert my will and pervert my, pervert my purposes? And so here you see the future judgment of false teachers is explicit in the teaching of the Bible and is expected since God has recorded his righteous judgment against sin and various forms throughout the Bible. Fallen angels, the flood of the entire world, and the fiery extinction of ungodly uh, cities. And in each of those situations, the Bible is making it clear. If then, if this happens, and if I've judged in this way, will I not then judge these false teachers? And it's important for us to know that because then in that time, we, we, we could begin to wonder, right? As they maybe have that, that time. Would Lot not wonder sometimes uh, when he was grieved over their lawless deeds? He was tormenting his righteous over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Begin to wonder that he said, "Man, will anything change here? Will anything? Is there any impact being made here? Any, any, anything going to change?" And yet, God's going to immediately insert His righteous judgment as He seems fit. And so, this is a means of encouragement to the body of Christ. It's a means of encouragement to the body of Christ, which leads us to then our last point: the future judgment of false teachers is inevitable due to God's holy character, as described in. The Bible, the future judgment of false teachers is inevitable due to God's holy character as described in the Bible. So what I'm not communicating here is that there's inevitable in the sense of uh, they could not repent. Right. And find forgiveness. Right. They were they were born again. They repent of their sins, even the sins of the false teaching, and they begin to live righteously. But in their hardness of heart, they continue to rebel against God. Ultimately, then it is inevitable that they will be judged. And it is expected, and is ex- uh, and is expected because it is explicit in the teaching of Scripture that because of God's holy character, it's inevitable that they will be judged as described in God's Bible and the Holy Word is because of God's character. This is where verses nine and ten help us. It says, "Then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly, the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment." And especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and despise authority. So it's inevitable that they're going to experience judgment because of the righteous character of God's holy nature. Right? He hates sin. Sin will be judged. And this is where uh, I think the crux of what uh, Peter's attempting to communicate to the saints. Two major things. And I think this is where you really see... Peter's pastoral heart come out. Number one, God will punish the unrighteous. This is the whole crux of what's transpiring here. You begin to look at the dominance potentially of false teaching. How it's welcomed by so many. Even as you begin to see 
First and Second Timothy, and as he writes to Paul, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, "Man, in the last days, they're going to gather for themselves and they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers who are going to teach falsely." Itching ears, they just want to hear the things that they want to hear. And you begin to look at the landscape of Christianity. You begin to look at the landscape of, of what seems to be just growing and thriving. And it seems like churches aren't preaching the Bible. And it's all self-help. And it's all about believe, the, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And you'll accomplish anything. Sort of positive thinking. If you just think the right things, man, it's all going to go well for you. Listen, we don't want to be too judgmental of others. We don't want to call sin what it is. We want to welcome and, and invite all to be able to participate in this with us. Uh, we're, we're, all, we're open to anyone who's going to come, regardless of their lifestyle, and they don't have to uh, uh, repent of any sin or trust in Christ for His finished work on the cross. You can have whatever life you want and live it to the fullest. And you can look on the landscape of America and, and examine that and go, man, it would be so much easier to live that way, would it not? The whole world seems to embrace you and to accept you. Be liked by most everyone. And if anyone disagrees with you, just tell them that, man, oh, I affirm you. I, I, I wouldn't behave that way myself. I may not prefer that in my sexual orientation. I may not prefer that in the way I would view things. That might be how I would govern my household. But I, who am I to say that you're wrong? And so uh, by no means would I be intolerant of your viewpoint. I wholeheartedly embrace you and accept you. And so if anyone were to be offended by you, you can easily... Uh, move to their, their realm and, uh, and to uh, uh, encourage them and to uh, justify them and vindicate them in their lifestyle. Because why? It's all for everyone. No one's wrong. And this can be potentially the, the mindset here is that that's a dangerous way to live and it's a dangerous way to think because why? God's character is such that He is good. You think, well, no, nobody would, nobody would disagree with that. God is good. And ultimately, God's character, the Bible describes himself that he is love. And man, nobody would disagree with that. It's because God is good. And it's because God is love that we, we, how dare anyone say that anyone's behavior would be wrong or sinful. God's loving and tolerant and accepting of everyone and every lifestyle. And if you're a, a wise pastor, you're going to communicate as such. But they fail to understand the loving, good God of the Bible. And because he is good and because he is loving, he must, to be good, hate that which is evil. And to be loving, must hate that which would cause evil. And therefore, the Bible then describes God this way. God is holy, holy, holy. He's different than us. He's distinct from us. He has a knowledge of sin, but not in any experiential type way that he's performed any sinful act. He does not sin or is, or is tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin, the scripture says in James. And so God, because he is good, because he is loving, because he is holy, God will punish the unrighteous. God will punish sin. And this is why it's important for us to understand. Sin is not just outside of us, but we are sinful. It is us. Evil continually, Genesis chapter 6 said, did it not? Their thoughts and imagine the thoughts and the imaginations of their, of their minds were only evil continually. And so God will punish sin. It's just what it says here in verse 
verse, uh, verse 9 and verse 10. It says, And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of the following passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. We're going to tackle some of that next week. But ultimately, as we're seeing here in, in verse 9 and verse 10, the Bible says, Listen, God knows how to judge them who are condemned. Now, what do we know about those who are sinners, the unregenerate? Are they in some neutral state until they die and then they're judged? Are they uncondemned before that that particular time and then once they die, that's when the, the, the real condemnation comes? No, right? John chapter 3, everyone loves to... To quote John chapter 3, verse 16, right? It's kind of the, the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel in one verse kind of a deal. But if you continue to read on, it says that Christ didn't come to condemn the world. They were condemned already. They stand guilty. The wrath of God, John chapter 3, verse 36 says, it abides upon the unrighteous. So they're condemned. They're there. And so God knows how to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment. He's told, communicated that's exactly what's happening to these angels. Right? That's exactly what happened to those he destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exactly what happened to those in the unrighteous world who died in the, in the day of Noah. There's still a future judgment for these individuals to be cast into the lake of fire. Punishment. Hasn't have they are suffering now, but there's a future judgment still to come. And yet he says, does he not know for those who are condemned in our day? That's for us not to be aware that that's, that's happening, that's coming. And so he, we need to understand that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment to the day of judgment. God will punish the unrighteous. And if we think through that, we... Tim led us well a few weeks ago as we were thinking about precatory prayers, right? Praying for God's righteous judgment to come. But it should be mingled with um, a desire for evil to stop. A desire for the sinner to cease their sinning. But hopefully our, our mindset, our desire should be that, yes, we want it to stop. We want it, as we studied last week, that the, the, the ungodly would be saved. And we know that God desires all to be saved and come to knowledge of His truth. And so that's what our desire should be, is that to see those who have lived in complete rebellion against God, that they would turn from their sin, they would place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that He is able to do that. He's able to transform their hearts and minds. But as we think through this, we, would, we should desire that false teachers would not teach falsely. But even in that teaching, we would want to warn them of a future judgment that's to come. And this is the encouragement it brings, that you are under judgment. And that if you die in your sins, you die in this context of this lifestyle, you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Our desire should be one of empathy and sympathy and compassion. We desire to pray for them and to warn them and to open our mouths and speak. And this is why it's really important for us to understand this. And why he would just, yes, he wants to condemn the false teachers. And yes, he wants to bring a distinction that, that, you, that they would not be exploited by them. And we would not, that believers in that particular time and in our day as well, would not fall for their schemes. 
but then also that the righteous would walk and would remain steadfast. And here's where the encouragement comes. That because of God's holy character, not only does God will punish the unrighteous, but God will preserve the righteous. He will punish the unrighteous, but God will preserve the righteous. He also knows how to keep those uh, to keep uh, the unrighteous under punishment to the day of judgment. But you go back to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials as well. You could begin to think at this particular time, as you're seeing these wholesale judgment brought upon all, uh, all of the angels that had participated the way they did, and all of them were, were, uh, were thrown into hell, right? Cast into hell. And you see all of the ancient world destroyed by water. You see, all of those in the region, except for just a handful, were destroyed in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding region. And you could get to the point where you just think, well, there's no hope. There are no, there are no righteous. And before, apart from that, you begin to think, man, we should just give up. And this is, there's no hope for us. And that we're, we're, we're pushing an upward battle. The reality in this is that the Bible says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And it's intended not only to show that God will judge the, the ungodly in a future day, but to encourage the saints that God has not forgotten you as well. God has not forgotten you. Now think about this just for a moment. Think about this just for a moment. Everyone on the planet, everyone on the planet but you and seven others would be destroyed by water. There can be at times where we as a church could begin to look around and go, where is everyone? What is going on? And you've got to begin to look at it. Is this what the Bible, is, is this indicative of what the Bible has taught? And you begin to look at verse 5. If you, did, you begin to see Noah, a herald of righteousness. Noah, a herald of righteousness. You see, begin to see, if he did not spare, spare the ancient world. Now think about that just for a moment and play your, apply your, your life in the context of this situation. There are more of us in this room who are righteous than were on the planet in the day of Noah. God spared eight. And God did not spare the rest of the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Do you feel as alone anymore? There were no others. Eight people. Seven others. It's all that remained. But God's able to preserve the righteous. Noah, a herald of righteousness. You see then, number two, righteous lot. Righteous lot in verse 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, you and I, as we read through this, we would, be, we would begin to question whether or not lot was righteous. Right? A few times you think, how in the world? Why would he stay there? Why would he live in that context? And then, man, what was he doing with his two daughters? I mean, what kind of father is that? 
And we can begin to question those even in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You begin to think about some of those guys and go, I don't know if I'd put him in the list, man. I, I don't, you know, I'm not sure. Look how the Bible describes three times, three times the Bible speaks of right as a lot as righteous. Look at this. And if he rescued righteous lot, there's the first, greatly distressed by sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that what? Righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his what? Righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now there's an entire region, Sodom, Gomorrah, Gomorrah and surrounding cities. Not just those two surrounding cities. Imagine an entire region. And remember, Abraham is interceding for these regions, or these cities, this region. God, if there be ten, just ten, right? Just ten people spared the entire region. And God's like, thumbs up, I got gotcha. you. There's ten, I'll spare them all. And men and women, there were but three. But three. And it doesn't communicate necessarily that the daughters were righteous. Who's to say was righteous? Righteous lot. Now you think, well, they got brought out. Maybe think through this a little bit. What happened shortly thereafter, after they were brought out of the city? The daughters began to believe that there will be no husband for them that would be continued to carry on their name, right? Got my opportunity to be find why uh, uh, husbands and be married and they could be wives and bear children. And so they got their father drunk on two different occasions and had an incestuous relationship with her father. There come the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's going to create problems later on. You begin to think. Out of an entire region of people, there was only three that were righteous. And the encouragement for us in those is to see this. This is the last one. So God will preserve the righteous. There was Noah, a herald of righteousness, righteous lot, and then the righteous person of today, which could be you or I, a righteous person today. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This is important for us as we see this because we look on the landscape and you can see, man, it seems like the false teachers, their ministries are thriving. Their ministries are growing. They've got more money than they know what to do with. They've planes and buildings and, and, and resources galore. Massive following. And we're attempting to do what's I'm, My family's attempting to do what's right. And I get odds with extended family members or situations at the office because I'm willing to be an upright character. I'm not willing to lie upon things for greed. And it's... You begin to think, well, my, my boss should want me to be truthful. I mean, if I'm willing to lie on this report so that he can gain money, what made me think that I wouldn't steal from him in other ways? You think I would, I would, you know, remain steadfast and he would be grateful that I couldn't lie. And yet you may lose promotions or lose opportunities to move up or to make more money as a result of being righteous. And this is exactly the point. God is going to judge the unrighteous and false teachers. It's explicitly taught. It's expected because the Bible has demonstrated that God has judged in times past. And these were examples for us. And it's inevitable as a result that God cannot turn a blind eye towards sin. 
But all the way, all the while, there's a warning for those and for us to warn them and us to stay away from false teaching. The encouragement for us today is to be able to go, but God's not impressed by numbers. Imagine this for just a moment. Out of the 12 spies that were sent, how many were righteous? Now, these were the people of God, was it nine? Of the 12, how many were righteous? Two. Only two brought back a good report. Imagine this, of those who were recorded. At the end of Jesus' ministry, right, his, before he went to the cross, how many remained? They all scattered. Those closest to him all scattered, right? Every one of them scattered. And then even after post-resurrection and ascension, and this isn't necessarily to say it was all of the disciples, uh, that there couldn't be others that were followers, but gathered in the room that were committed to praying and ab- about God's kingdom's purposes. How many were up in the upper room or in, their, in the room praying? 120. Very close. 120. This was Jesus. So I want to communicate those things to be able to see many times we our, our means of measuring faithfulness, we're measuring by the wrong parameters we measure based upon are we doing what god's word has communicated regardless of how many people are following and we clearly want i I, my prayer and desire would be that the the lost will be saved my prayer would be that we would see a transformation growth and as each of us are carrying the gospel in a variety of different places and and venues that individuals will be born again as a result of that they would attach themselves to us as disciples and that we would bring them here and we'd begin to encourage them and as a result the, the, this local assembly would flourish. It should be all of our desires. It should be all of our prayers. To be examine ourselves as, are we faithfully proclaiming the gospel? Are we faithfully praying for others? Are we being bold witnesses? Are we living out, um, uh, are we living in obedience to the, to the commands that Christ has left us? Are we, are we doing the one another commands with one another? Or do people who they visit here, are they seeing fruitfulness and, and a unity here? Is there any unrepented or, uncon, or uh, unconfessed sin that needs to be repented of? We need to be examining those things. But as we examine those things and say, well, I'm not perfect, but I know of no known sin. I don't believe we're, we're putting undue burdens on anyone. The reality here has to be, is to be able to go. But if we're doing the things that we're faithful, we must trust the Lord who is faithful. And I think this is the encouragement here. That because of God's character, he will punish the unrighteous and he will preserve the righteous. And so the encouragement for you and the encouragement for me is that, man, we need to be warning those who stand in condemnation and are affirming those who teach false gospels and teach falsehood. To warn them that they are condemned and they are being kept under punishment unless they repent. But then ultimately know that when we do that, we, there's a risk, is there not? There's a risk. As we desire to move toward a plurality of elders and to sit in closing, as we desire to want to do things biblically, knowing that it stands out and against our society and even what's normative through churches. Pastor Tim and I had conversations. Our families have had conversations to be able to go, hey, there could be a fallout in how this is carried out. Are we willing to, to honor what the Bible says at any cost? We want to do it the way God says to do it at any cost. And the reality is, the answer is yes. Why? Because there was a Noah, a herald of righteousness, because of righteous Lot. 
Not to say that Noah or Lot were perfect, but the Bible deems them as righteous. And God spared them as an example to be a word of encouragement to future generations, even our own, to be able to withstand the onslaught of what we see today in our churches and a desire to move away from what the Bible commends and commands for us to live and how to live in amongst one another. So it's being an encouragement to you this morning. God has not forgotten us. Just like we sang moments ago. He's not forgotten you. And he's able to keep you. He's able to preserve you from all the trials that the godly will interact. He knows where you're at. May it be an encouragement to you. And may it encourage us not to grow quiet. May it encourage us not to try to find our little holy huddles. And we, we sit here and we just preserve here until God calls us home. No. Never. We should be on the aggressive, out sharing the gospel with those who absolutely need it. Why? Because we will be preserved. And they are going to be punished. And if we were living where they lived, would we not want someone to cross the track and share the gospel with us? Would we not want somebody to continue to come to us and love us and show loving kindness and patience and forgiveness to reach us? Right? And so with that, I commend you. I commend you what the Bible would say. God is faithful. He will punish those who do wrong. And he will preserve those who do right. He will preserve the righteous and he will punish the ungodly. But for us to be faithful all the while. Let's pray. Father, we It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.